on the 25th of February, Independence Live held an online conference on the topic of moving beyond the Sustainable Growth Commission. This was a very well attended conference and had a great lineup of speakers. We're going to bring you the audio from that conference in two parts. This is part one, which includes some input from experts such as Craig DL, Richard Murphy, Karen Van Sweden and Tim Rideout, giving their thoughts on the Growth Commission report. Also some jargon-busting explanations as to what some of the terms are that we need to understand. Following that, we have an interview chaired by Ruth Wishart, interviewing George Caravan and Tim Rideout, where Ruth poses some of the many very common questions that are currently being posed to independent supporters and questions that we need answers to this time. So hope you enjoy part one. Part two will be uploaded tomorrow. When we talk about the Sustainable Growth Commission, we have to realise that it's it's actually been really vague on what that actually means. Does it mean that we shall have an economy that is growing, but is doing so in a in a way that is resulting in a, an economy that is sustainable, that is environmental and is protecting the planet, even while it's growing, uh, bearing in mind that we live on a finite planet with finite resources? Or does it simply mean that we are creating an economy that is growing indefinitely, that the growth is indefinitely sustained? The Growth Commission itself hasn't really been able to to decide which one of those two it is. And if it's the former, if it's trying to create a, an ecologically sustainable uh, society and economy. I mean, there have been several reports now saying that you cannot do that indefinitely on a finite planet. The report of the Scottish Growth Commission that came out well over a year ago now, the most important thing that it recommended was that Scotland should not have a separate currency at the time that it becomes independent, but should over a period acclimatise itself to the idea that it might have a currency but use sterling in the meantime. This was the notorious policy of sterlingisation which I have never agreed with. What are the alternatives? Now the Scottish Currency Group of which I am a member is putting forward the idea that we should be looking at a situation where Scotland moves very rapidly after independence in a matter of weeks towards having its own currency that floats freely against the pound sterling and against every other currency in the world. This is a model that works. But what is more, it's a policy that delivers independence for Scotland. Scotland, shackled by the pound, would still be hopping to the tune hummed by London. And that is not, I am sure, what those who will be campaigning for independence want. What campaigners for independence want is a Scotland free to choose its own economic path that reflects its own social path. I believe that no country on earth has ever become independent because it wants to carry on with the social and economic model of the country from which it has departed. It does instead wish to pursue its own distinct personal, in the sense of representing the agenda of the people of the country, agenda that will represent their needs, their wants, their desires and the type of society that they want to live in. Democracy thrives on diversity. There's strength in diversity. There's strength in the diversity of opinion from people coming from, from different backgrounds and viewpoints, all putting their ideas together and hopefully coming out with something that is stronger than any one of them could have come out with themselves. So by critically analysing our friends and not disparaging them as being the opposition all the time, we can create an independence that, that genuinely works for all of us, that pulls all of us along on that journey. So section B starts from an entirely false assumption that a government deficit is a bad thing and that your overwhelming priority is to deal with the deficit. And uh, therefore it starts from the JERS report uh, and suggests that, uh, you know, according to that, the, you know, because of uh, what the UK dumps on us, that we'd start off with an eight or 9% deficit. And therefore our priority over the first 10 years is to reduce that uh, to 3%, which is some sort of magic rule that, um, 3% is a good number, whereas 8% is a bad number. And it's just not true. 
I think uh, when you consider the COVID situation uh, this year, uh, the UK has gone back to Second World War levels of spending, uh, which means we've been running a deficit of nearly 20% of GDP, not 8%, not 3%, 20%. And uh, has the world come to an end? Well, certainly not because of the deficit. Might have come to an end because of COVID, but um, uh, the financial side of things has, you know, gone on as usual, there's no inflation. Uh, the running the deficit has simply allowed the Chancellor uh, to provide things like the furlough scheme, uh, support for business and all the things that the government should be doing. Is that deficit a problem? No. The interest rate is the lowest it's, lowest it's ever been in 300 years. And uh, the government is borrowing at about 0.5% interest. So the cost effectively of those loans is essentially zero. Much of them has been provided by the Bank of England in any case, which is simply part of the government. And you know you can't really owe money to yourself. So some 900 billion is effectively just written off and uh, will never be repaid. So if you get rid of that assumption that deficits are bad because they're not, you know, a household deficit, my deficit if I overspend the credit card is a bad thing. But a government deficit is completely different. The government is the creator of the money. It creates money by spending. By running a deficit, it creates more money for us. And a government deficit is simply a private surplus. So that means that I can get and you can get to the end of the month and have a little bit of money left over. And that is surely a much better thing than a government surplus, in which case the government accumulates a bit of money and we all go into debt instead. So, you know, if you look at it like that, then you start to see that, uh, you know, the normal situation to have a healthy economy uh, and, uh, you know, a Scotland, a newly independent Scotland developing successfully is that you need to have a government deficit. And in the early years of independence, we have to do a lot of repairing of damage caused by the Tories over the last 30 or 40 years. We need to invest in the economy. Denmark has something like 50,000 core civil servants. We only have 8,000. So we maybe need 42,000 new civil service jobs. The buildings, the infrastructure, the you know, furniture, canteens, IT equipment and all the rest of it to go with that. Um, you know, maybe something like two or three billion of spending by the Scottish government to provide that infrastructure. That's going to be contracts going left, right and centre all over the country. You know, the new Ministry of Agriculture in Dumfries may be having 800 jobs going to that part of the country. Coast Guard headquarters in Stornoway. Uh, you know, the Ministry of Energy going to Aberdeen with perhaps, you know, 2,000 jobs or something. That's all money, work, investment going into our pockets. Half of it goes straight back to the Scottish government in extra taxes, which, you know, helps in the long term to reduce your deficit as a sort of self-correcting task. All of that investment in the economy would produce a you know, post-independence boom. None of that features really in the Growth Commission report. Right now, Scotland is quite rightly focused on the current crisis that is the coronavirus pandemic. But as we come out of that, we have to recognise that just a few years from now, we will hit the irreversible tipping point of the climate emergency. We have less than a decade now to make serious inroads into fixing that problem. So the solution of getting us out of the pandemic has to be the one that also gets us out of the climate emergency. So reaching back to something like the Growth Commission report that came out pre-pandemic that doesn't really tackle the problems of the climate emergency, it's, it's just shown itself to be a, a, an obsolete report even before it's implemented. So we need to use yeah, all of the resources of Scotland and all of the tools that Scotland has to offer to turn Scotland into that Green New Deal country that we, we, we need to survive the climate emergency. But also recognising that the solution for that will be one that leads us to a, a, a better, happier, more equal society. I started doing an anatomical sciences degree in 2011. So then in 2018, the Growth Commission came out and I started to dissect the Growth Commission and realised there was some quite essential economic anatomy missing from that. So the British economy is in a critical condition. One of the reasons is that there has been a, a serious effort to hide currency abroad, tax havenry. Our economy in the UK is tipped very much towards what's called a rentier economy. So people literally sitting on assets 
and taking money in from assets that are fundamentally not doing anything very useful. And that's not a good situation for any country to be in. That's quite a negative situation. And it's not the situation you'll find if you live in Germany um, or in the Netherlands. It's not the same. So um, that's something that we really have to address. It has to change. A central bank is essential for a country to function. A central bank which creates its own currency is really you could analyze it with the bone marrow of, of a body where the, the blood cells are created. Essentially, your currency is the blood that is going around your body. A country needs its own currency that it produces and controls. Your government produces its currency. And the reason it's valuable is because you will pay tax. That's why your currency has valuable value per se. So the currency of a country should be used for useful purposes not for giving away to the friends of people who are in government which is something we're seeing quite a lot of just now the currency should be used to educate your doctors your nurses your teachers it should be used to build bridges your roads your infrastructure it should be used to pay people to do this to make your country into a, an efficient place and a pleasant place to live simple idea that I was involved in creating in 2008, we realised that there was a an economic crisis, there was an employment crisis, there was a green crisis, there was a biodiversity crisis, there was a fuel crisis because we knew that oil was beginning to decline. We knew that we needed to transition to a sustainable economy. So what we proposed was a large investment programme in sustainability. Things like making sure that our houses are insulated, making sure that we have new energy generation schemes and new energy transmission schemes and sustainable transport based upon electricity and not oil and on and on and on. Now, could the government of Scotland do that if the Scottish Growth Commission's whole idea, the Sustainable Growth Commission's ideas were in place? No, why not? Because they have said that the Scottish government must not borrow because it's got to reduce its deficit. The whole basis on which the Green New Deal would have to take place would be on the basis of upfront borrowing to fund the investment to get this process of change taking place. That's the way in which all processes of change are funded. But it couldn't do that because of the deficit rules. So therefore, Scotland will be left behind the green curve, one of the lagging states in the world, one, instead of being one of those states at the forefront. And this would be catastrophic for Scotland, because, because Scotland has got all the ability to be in the lead in this race by the fact it's got more sustainable energy capacity than virtually any other country in Europe. It's got more tidal capacity than any other country whatsoever in Europe. And it could, therefore, be investing heavily to be in the lead of this whole race to become green. How much you can make in an economy, in your job, for a given amount of time. So if you worked on a production line, how many widgets per hour can you make? And you can imagine if you're on that production line, you can improve your productivity through more automation or better processes, you can make more widgets per hour. Where it's a bit more difficult is in economies that are largely service driven, like the Scottish economy is now and like the UK economy more broadly is. So if you think about a service such as cutting someone's hair, what does it mean to improve productivity in that? Um, uh, sector, you might think about cutting more sets of hair per hour, but how could you do that? You could be a more skilled barber or hairdresser, but it's not a, not a job that can be easily automated to, to a sense. Imagine the same problem in things like care or other service sectors. So this idea of productivity, boosting your economy through more efficient or more effective um, processes, very important, good to study, not as easy in some sectors as others government has to have what it means is how they use their spending to influence behavior in their economy so what they choose literally to spend their money on and how they choose to tax that money back in other words who they tax how they tax and of course what they therefore penalize and what they incentivize as a result so fiscal policy refers to a government spending and revenue cycle a fiscal deficit rule, which is what the Sustainable Growth Commission is proposing, basically says that the government should not spend more than 3% more than it can claim back from the economy in tax. Now, 
It is said that Scotland has not done this for the last few years, although let's be clear, the Scottish government has actually balanced its budget in every year because that is what it is required to do. And so whether or not there's really a deficit in Scotland or not at present is not known because the data we've got in the JERS, the Government Expenditure and Revenue Statement for Scotland, doesn't actually answer that question in a way that is reliable. But... Can you reduce that deficit, which is said to be 5.9% at present, to 3%, which is what the Growth Commission says, and not pursue austerity? Well, the only other way it could do that is to go for hyper-growth. In other words, boost the economy enormously. And the only way it could boost the economy enormously, given the current state of the Scottish economy and the world economy with COVID and Brexit and everything else, is by government spending. But government spending is ruled out by what is being proposed because the government can't borrow under the fiscal rule that the Growth Commission is proposing. So there's only one other option left if the two figures of spending and revenue are brought to be brought within 3% of each other, and that is austerity, which is the very thing that the Growth Commission says it rejects. Uh, uh, what's coming in and what's going out of the country, and it's divided into two elements. There's what's called the current account, uh, which is uh, exports and imports. Uh, basically, that's, that's your trade uh, side of things. So uh, imports and exports might be goods, but they might, they're more likely in the UK to be services. Um, so you know nothing crosses the border, but if an architect uh, completes a contract for a company in Germany, uh, then they receive a payment for the service provided. So you know there's sort of intellectual goods being exported, but not nothing actual physical. And uh, then you have what's called the capital account, and the capital account is uh, uh, things like inward investment, outgoing investment. You know if we bought uh, shares abroad or something like that, uh, that is a an outflow on the capital account. Um, the capital account uh, would also include things like repatriation of profits, dividends, uh, interest charges, rents, things like that going in or out of the countries. Monetary policy tries to control inflation in a different way from fiscal policy. Both fundamentally look at the balance within the economy. The focus of monetary policy is controlling inflation. And the only tool that is really available to control it in a normal situation is the interest rate. Interest rates are set by a central bank. And so Scotland would have to have its own central bank if it was to have an effective monetary policy to control inflation. But under the Scottish Growth Commission proposals, there will be no effective central bank in Scotland for some years to come because Scotland will be using the pound sterling, which is English under these proposals. And therefore, interest rates set in England would be what would be used to control the inflation rate in Scotland, which would not be relevant. I mean, literally, Scotland might have a very different inflation rate. I don't imagine it would greatly, but it's theoretically possible. And Scotland would have no mechanism under monetary policy available to do that. There's one other part of monetary policy that I need to mention, and that is quantitative easing. Now, QE is a separate topic, but basically it is the process of the central bank injecting money into the economy when there is a situation where it's short of the cash to make the literally will go round. And if you haven't got a central bank with its own currency, which is what the Scottish Growth Commission proposes, quantitative easing, which has made sure that the UK banks and the UK economy has been solvent for the last 11 or 12 years, would not be available to Scotland after independence, therefore completely, well, absolutely destroying the possibility of the Scottish government intervening to ensure that there would be stability, growth and security within the Scottish economy post-independence. The last thing that the people of Scotland, of course, would want. The central bank's really very simple. It's, it's the bank for the bankers, Royal Bank of Scotland or something like that. They have what's called a reserve account at the central bank, and that holds the money that, you know, that is actually belonging to the bank as opposed to the customers of the bank. And uh, if I instruct the Royal Bank to make a payment to somebody who banks with Barclays, you know, if I instruct them to pay £100 to the Barclays customer, that £100 comes off my account. It also comes off the reserve account of the Royal Bank, and it goes onto the Royal to the Barclays reserve account, and they then put it into the 
internal account of the customer. So the the payment system is going through the Bank of England and it transfers the you know the money from between the commercial banks through their reserve accounts. Uh, it's also the bank to the government. So the Treasury's accounts are held at the central bank. And therefore, when the Treasury you know, pays somebody's pension, that is a payment from the central bank to the pensioner. When you pay your tax bill, uh, that is a payment from you that goes to the uh, HMRC account at the central bank. But more than just, just that, uh, the central bank is also, it's the source of all of the money in the economy because it's the central bank that creates the money. Uh, and it does that by simply crediting an account. Um, so it can deposit money into the treasury account, which the treasury can spend, which they've been doing during the COVID crisis. It can deposit money into a commercial bank account, uh, which the commercial bank can then lend out or you know spend or do, do as they wish. So if a commercial bank gets into trouble and you know, there's a run on the bank, as happened with Nationwide, then they can go and ask the Bank of England, the central bank, for an emergency loan, in which case the central bank simply deposits whatever is necessary into the reserve account. There's no limit to how much money the central bank can uh, pay into any of its accounts. It's just a computer entry in an accounting ledger doesn't come from anywhere. Uh, the central bank is only a central bank if it has a currency. Um, so in the Growth Commission plan, the problem is that they, they talk about having a central bank, uh, but they also say that we wouldn't have a currency. So in that case, the central bank isn't really a central bank. It's no different from any commercial bank. It, has, it would be under exactly the same constraints uh, because it can't just create sterling. Uh, so it's not a lender of last resort because it doesn't have anything that it can lend. So it's a sort of could only really be a pretend central bank. Let me explain what quantitative easing is. QE, as it's called, is the process where a central bank with its own currency creates new money by making a loan between the government and the central bank. Now, this is done very simply by tapping some entries into a keyboard. All money is a promise to pay. And all that QE is, is the government saying to its central bank, please create new money, which we promise to repay to you, but actually we don't say when. And of course, because they own the central bank, they don't have to say when they'll repay it. And in practice, they never will. That QE money is then injected into the economy. It's injected into the economy by way of buying back the debt that the government creates to fund its deficit, because most countries have governments that run deficits. And in that way, QE funds a government's deficit and has meant there's been no demand in most countries in the world upon bond markets to fund the ongoing deficits that countries have run to manage the global financial crisis of 2008 and literally almost everything that has happened during the COVID crisis. So QE is effectively about the government funding itself through its own central bank by, in effect, running an overdraft. Although, let me be clear, the Bank of England completely deny that. They say it's about controlling inflation. And bluntly, nobody really believes them. Because uh, the, the, the government debt, which is made up of bonds of various sorts, uh, is actually the national savings of the citizens and companies and pension funds and so forth. Uh, in the UK. So if you have a premium bond, you know, that's your savings, but it's the government's debt. Uh, you, know, you know, why would you want a foreign country to take away part of the savings of the country? You know, it's a very strange idea once you realise that. Um, there's other things to do with the national debt in that uh, it's actually much smaller than the BBC, for example, talk about. You know, if you read the news recently, you, you'll see people saying because of COVID, that the national debt has gone up to something like 2.2 trillion. Well, it hasn't uh, because 900 billion has been bought or provided by the Bank of England. So the actual national debt is about 1.25 trillion pounds. As in the last year, the national debt has actually gone down, not up. And that, but that's because the Bank of England belongs to the Treasury. It's a subsidiary of the Treasury. You can't owe yourself money. So the 900 billion that the bank has provided effectively has cancelled that debt. Even if you do treat the national debt as a debt, then over the last 30 or 40 years, 
because of oil revenues accruing to London, uh, Scotland has actually paid in something like between 300 and 400 billion of surplus revenues. So if you took the national debt at 1.2 trillion and said, we're due 8%, so maybe 100 billion, we've already paid 300 billion, so we should actually still get a refund of 200 billion. Okay, so government debt is not like our debt, not like us as a household or us as a business, because we are not currency creators and the government is a currency creator. So when you're talking about government debt, what you're really talking about is are rather bonds and um, bonds are a form of I would describe them alternatively as safe deposit accounts at the Bank of England so if you have um, spare cash if it's over £85,000 and you're looking for somewhere safe to keep your over £85,000 then a bank account at the Bank of England is ideal so your bonds are essentially a safe place for you to stash your money if you have spare cash. So when you're talking about debt, if you looked at it in the sense of a household, then I can never create money. Um, so I can be in debt in, in the currency of the country that I live in. But because the government is the currency provider, it's never really in debt in its own currency. That's It's really a misnomer. I, I regard that language as misleading. We know the damage that our economy has done to this planet, but can we create a, an economy that is perpetually growing, yet is somehow not doing damage to the planet while we do so? Or do they simply mean that the growth itself should be sustained indefinitely and we should never, ever think about an economy that is not growing? Um, there are movements like the the, the Degrowth Society, which uh, which advocates that we should think about shrinking the economy to, to a degree because you know the, we're, we're having too much of an impact on the planet or even if we just move to a steady state economy where we're not growing we're not shrinking but we are truly living sustainably within our means with the resources that we have yes there are different ways of measuring your economy and measuring your economics so the, the thing about gdp is when you discover that the disaster that was the exxon valdez increase the GDP of, of the American economy, you realise that that's perhaps not necessarily always the measurement of economics that you want to look at. I'm going to show my bias here and talk about measurements of uh, inequality. So, for example, if you look at the Gini coefficient or human development index, you'll see them on any Wikipedia page and they'll describe um, some conditions within a country. So if you look at the UK and make a comparison between Sweden, Denmark, Norway, um, and Iceland, you can see that all these countries around about us are actually doing much better um, with their Gini coefficient um, in correlation with the human development index. This, this measure of GDP has, has led to a paradigm in economics that is about chasing GDP growth at almost at all costs. So trying to grow that really crude, inaccurate number as much as possible for as long as possible. And that might lead you to an economy that is on paper bigger, but it doesn't say anything about the shape of that economy or how unequal that economy is, or even if it is improving the health and well-being and happiness and worthwhileness of the people within that. Yeah, well, you, you get you get economic growth and you get in, in improvements in productivity to get that economic growth by applying two things, capital and labour. Um, uh, the, the, the Commission is very keen to get more labour and there's a whole, whole section on how we need to in, increase um, immigration of labour, because skilled labour from abroad. Um, but there's also reference to how we up the capital intensity, the amount of investment in plant and machinery uh, in the economy. Um, and it's perfectly true, and the, the, the report makes allusions to this, it's perfectly true that one of the failures of the Scottish economy in the last couple of generations is to invest in advanced um, plant and machinery so that we have a low capital intensity a low amount of capital per worker compared to similar, uh, uh, more productive economies um, in Western Europe. Um, unfortunately, where the growth report thinks is going to get the extra capital to do this is through inward investment. Um, that's debatable, um, but even if you wanted to do go that route, you end up um, you know, having to cut taxes to um, persuade the big multinationals to come, come and, and, and invest in Scotland, um, so you're, you're, you're quickly 
going down a neoliberal model and a deregulated model, uh, which I think is implicit in, in, in the Growth Commission. Um, if we want to increase capital intensity, if we want to actually increase investment in plant and machinery and technology, which we do, post-independence, um, then we can do that from within our own resources. The Scottish Government has already created a national investment bank. I think that's the primary tool, and we should expand its remit uh, so that we don't have to be dependent on foreign capital. Uh, we can do it ourselves. If we well, the job guarantee scheme is a retort to a particularly nefarious concept in orthodox economics called the NIRU, the non-accelerating rate, uh, um, non-accelerating inflationary rate, rather, of unemployment, which posits that it is necessary to keep a percentage of your population unemployed to um, hold inflation down. I find that particularly nefarious because of all the toxic societal effects that come with unemployment. It is not necessary to keep a percentage of your population unemployed. So at Modern Money Scotland, we are currently writing a paper. We're very close to publishing it. Um, and it will be about the job guarantee scheme. So the job guarantee scheme um, aims to make the government the employer of last resort. So there is no such thing as involuntary unemployment in an independent Scotland with its own currency and own central bank. It's a cash payment made to every resident in a country regardless of their circumstances and this is a, a complete paradigm shift away from the the benefits system that the UK uses where you have to fit into very specific circumstances to 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 receive benefits and, and trying to qualify for those can be quite onerous, can be, involve quite a lot of uh, processes to get there and there's often a, a lot of pressure on the, the, the departments that manage these benefits to try and find reasons to refuse to give these payments. And it can be a very exclusionary process. A universal basic income, however, just gives the money to everyone, regardless of the circumstances, automatically. And if people are already earning, then maybe that money can be taxed back off of them. This, this universal system, because it's already in place for everybody, regardless of their circumstances, when those circumstances change, such as maybe they lose their job because of a global pandemic, they still get these payments. They don't need to jump through hoops to get a pittance from a government that really doesn't want to give them anything. What the Sustainable Growth Commission is suggesting is that uh, Scotland should voluntarily agree to pay towards the, the UK national debt and the interest charges on the UK national debt, and also uh, that instead of having our own um, overseas aid programme, uh, we should carry on using the UK one and therefore contribute about a billion or so per annum for the, for, uh, the London government to disperse as it wishes. Um, so I don't think there's any uh, question about uh, taking a share of the UK national debt. I think the whole question arises out of a misunderstanding of what the UK national debt actually is. We absolutely don't need to pay a solidarity payment to the UK government. Um, why would we pay pounds to the UK government when the UK government can create pounds at will? You know, really, for the for a government and its currency, you can liken the currency to being like points. You know, it can never run out of points. An umpire can never run out of points. So, you know, the currency is essentially worthless uh, in, its, in and of itself. So what probably would happen at, at the point where we are talking about um, dividing assets with the rest of the United Kingdom, we would be talking about real physical assets. So, and another thing to bear in mind as well, as far as economics, or the economics of Scotland and the economics of Scotland within the UK is that at the Act of Union, we were 20% of the UK population, and now we are 8% of the population. And even if you just double our population just now and think about what that would mean in terms of our economy, um, you get the idea that policies that have encompassed Scotland through Westminster choices have really been detrimental to the Scottish economy, just from that very basic point of view of losing a very vital resource, which is people, the people of our country. Okay. One of the big debating points will be how much is transferred in terms of assets and debts and how much of the, the legacy UK debt will Scotland take on and be responsible for paying. And there's various ways you can calculate this um, from 
simply walking away and, and letting the, the UK own all of the, the, the debt as the successor state to the, the, the previous country, to taking various proportional shares of that debt and then paying it off in the usual way. However, the Growth Commission takes a different approach. It has proposed an annual solidarity payment, which says that Scotland wouldn't re be responsible for any of the UK's debt, but would pay the interest on that debt, pay a sum of £3 billion a year, indefinitely to the UK to service that debt. And it would do this without being able to, to pay off that debt, if you want to put it that way. So it would be a perpetual payment until it was re renegotiated. There would also be a billion pounds a year for what they call shared services. So instead of Scotland or until Scotland sets up its own departments, its own civil service functions, it would simply pay the remaining UK to fulfil that role for it. And there was a further £1.3 billion a year, which represents Scotland's for entire foreign aid budget, so which would be transferred to the UK to be spent on its foreign aid programmes. So under the Growth Commission plan, Scotland wouldn't have a foreign aid department. It would just give the money to the UK and the UK would spend this, for my part, is a terrible idea. And we should be looking at, at the historical precedents for how things like assets and debts are split between countries when they split and we should adopt the lessons that have been learned. So when the economies get into crisis, when businesses suddenly need an injection of money because of, you know, maybe a global pandemic has happened or a financial crash has happened, they might go to their bank, their retail bank, to try and get that money. But if the bank itself is struggling, that bank needs to go somewhere else for that money. That could be another uh, bank in a similar sector, another financial house. But if they are also in crisis, as we saw in 2008 when everything was collapsing, there needs to be someone at the top who can always guarantee that money. And in most countries that have an independent currency, that role is um, held by the country's central bank. Now, if you don't have your own currency, then the Monetary Institute or whatever um, department you have that does a similar job, although much more limited, might be able to fulfill that function, but it might not. And this is one of the, the risks that not having your own currency might pose. It should be said that the lender of last resort, while a, a prominent political point, isn't the be all and end all of financial regulation. The regulations themselves to make sure that banks don't collapse are, are just as important because if, you, if your banks don't collapse, you can't have a banking crisis. But also making sure that those regulations are followed through proper implementation of the regulations is important as well. If we have the economy set up so that it is resilient to, to shocks and crashes, then the need for a lender of last resort, while important to have, while useful to have when you do need it, the need to have it should be much less. Every country has to have a lender of last resort, at least every country that is that has its own central bank and its own currency. And if there is a country with its own central bank and its own currency, the lender of last resort, the person who makes sure that there is money available to always make sure that the economy goes round, is that central bank, because they can always issue more of their own currency if there is, for example, a banking crisis, which we saw in the UK as a whole in 2008, and we saw again in March 2020, although that's been less widely publicised. So the lender of last resort is the central bank, if it has its own currency. Under the Scottish Growth Commission proposals, the idea is that there should be no central bank in Scotland with its own currency for some time to come. That means the lender of last resort, the only organisation that could bail out Scotland's economy if there was to be another financial crisis, would be the Bank of England. Why would the Bank of England want to bail out Scotland in that situation when it has no responsibility for its economy? I'm quite sure, and I am absolutely confident in saying, that the Bank of England would not want to bail out Scotland in that situation, meaning there would be no lender of last resort in Scotland under the Scottish Growth Commission proposals, in which case Scotland would be exposed to the most enormous financial risk. Well, hello, everybody. My name is Ruth Wisher, and I'm hoping to get two distinguished economists to talk about the Sustainable Growth Commission in plain English. And this is essential since Dr. Tim Rydow is an economist who's also convener of the Scottish Currency Group and the man who famously crafted an amendment at 2019 SNP conference, which essentially removed the SGC's six tests 
in favour of establishing a Scottish pound as soon as possible. George Kerevan, now a columnist with The National, has had a previous incarnation as an SNP MP and a senior lecturer in economics. He's also founder, a founder member of the new Now Scotland grassroots movement. I have to say, I am something by contrast. I am the woman who failed O-grade mathematics for the third time in her sixth year at secondary school. In short, I'm here to ask the daft lassie questions. So let's start with you, Tim. I watched your lecture on why the Growth Commission six tests were essentially asking the wrong questions. So what are the main things you believe it got wrong? Well, I think the, the, the six tests, are, they're either things which have already been achieved or they're impossible to achieve or they're not relevant. So, for example, uh, uh, they talk about whether we whether we have a credible central bank. Well, central banks are only credible once they're actually running a currency and doing the job. So, you know, the European Central Bank had been running for 10 years at the time of the Greek crisis and st people were still saying, is it a credible central bank? So that's an example of a test that you can't actually meet beforehand. Something which was uh, irrelevant, for example, is a test which says, does the new proposed new currency meet the me needs of business and people? Well, uh, you know, it's complete nonsense because any currency meets the needs of uh, business and people in the, in the south pacific islands in the 18th century they used to use cowrie shells as a currency and you know that worked perfectly well and then uh, I, uh, I, presume that's not what, I presume that's not what you envisage for us tim uh, no of course it isn't uh, currencies are really not that difficult and many people will in fact have set up their own currency because if you've been part of a babysitting circle where you've had some sort of token, like I think my parents used to use ice lolly sticks, you know, then, you know, you issue everyone with two or three ice lolly sticks and then they can use those to pay for the babysitter. And then you have to, it makes everyone uh, have to take their turn because otherwise you run out of the token uh, and you only get more by doing your stint of babysitting for somebody else. Okay, well, I... I, I, I actually favour um, bottles of white wine, but each to their own. Um, George, you were involved in the startup of the Scottish Growth Commission. I mean, you were in on the ground floor of it. So, uh, so what, in your opinion, went wrong? It might be worth just explaining what, what happened. 2016, you'll remember um, the Brexit vote. Scottish uh, uh, SNP leadership suddenly thought we were uh, going to have a, a referendum very quickly. We were all sent out to gather a million signatures. Um, but clearly we needed some uh, an economic strategy for post-independence uh, to talk about during the referendum campaign. Um, everyone was more or less agreed that the thing that had gone wrong in 2014 uh, was the absence of a credible position on the currency. Uh, we'd been committed to just using the pound and being part of the pound structure. Uh, there's polling evidence that that uh, really confused people and people, of course, it gave the other side the, the argument, we won't let you use the pound. Um, so uh, as soon as the Growth Commission was announced, I phoned up uh, my old mate, Andrew Wilson, uh, the ultimate author of the document, and said, come, come, and let's have a chat. And I was an MP at the time. So Andrew flew down to London and we met together with Ian Blackford and Roger Mullen, uh, we had a nice dinner in a, a, a London watering hole on Andrew Wilson's expense account, uh, and we discussed what to do. And the whole tenor of the discussion was the Growth Commission report is about providing the arguments from moving away from keeping the pound to an argument for why we need our own currency after independence and how we will create it. Now, it also happened that at that point, there was no research apparatus in Scotland within the SNP uh, to produce the Sustainable uh, Commission report. And so it was agreed then and there that the MPs in London, because there were, there were 56 of us and we had, we had money, we had a research apparatus, the wonderful Miriam Brett was, was our uh, head of economics research full time, decided that we, the MPs, would take charge of doing the, the basic research and uh, for for the commission. So we started and then came the 2017 general election, snap election. Uh, some of us got uh, booted out, myself included, um, and uh, suddenly everything seemed to go quiet on the commission front. But what was really happening was um, that the commission had hired a whole series of very serious global um, research companies. And I don't know how they got, that got funded, still to this day I don't know how it got funded. Uh, and they produced an entirely different report, uh, which ultimately um, uh, was all about keeping the pound. And when I eventually asked Andrew Wilson what had uh, precipitated the change, it, he said they had discussed with the banks 
and the financial community, the financial community was worried about uh, uh, about moving to Scottish currency, and so they'd gone back to um, uh, the initial idea. Sterlingisation. The pound, yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me let me pick up on a couple of these points with Tim because. I, I read an interview very recently with Andrew Dunlop, who, if we remember, was David Cameron's man in Better Together. And he made the point that George has just emphasised that uh, really the failure to answer the currency question and indeed to have a proper fiscal strategy was what hold the yes camp below the below the waterline in 2014. And I'm not sure that I disagree with that, but do you? No, I thought it was a mistake at the time. Um, I wasn't particularly... Uh, you know, involved beyond leafleting in the branch and that sort of thing. But, you know, I thought, well, you know, this isn't the right plan, but I hope I assume that Salmon, etc. know what they're doing. And it turned out that they didn't. You know, the only the only plan that works politically that can stand up to any attack is to say we're going to do what every other country does and have our own currency. And, you know, nobody can attack that. Uh, if you say we're going to use, um, uh, we're going to have a currency union with the rest of the UK, well, that gives London a veto. If you say we're going to informally use sterling, well, that's exceptionally dangerous. And I think it's politically vulnerable because um, all that the no campaign has to do is say, no, you won't. You'll do what everyone else does and have their own currency. Well, let, let me just um, um, be devil's advocate here, Tim, because uh, I noticed in the course of that lecture, which you gave um, admittedly some years ago now, but you said that the thing about having our own currency was that people would have a choice that they would be able to choose whether or not to use the Scottish uh, pound or whatever we call it, or indeed to leave their savings or whatever in, in, in sterling. That would be their choice. Now, you also said that further down the line, they would find it using anything other than the Scottish pound pretty inconvenient. So they would, in time, gradually, we'd all, uh, we'd all migrate one way or another to using the Scottish pound. I want to know how you can be so sure of that. It's it's a voluntary exchange, so people, you know, I, we're we're Scots, so we're going to be a bit canny about it, and I think a lot of people will change a bit of their savings, and they'll keep the rest in sterling. Now that means that that you know they'd keep their existing bank account, and their sterling bank accounts would be part of uh, the well, the banks will have to split. So if you take Tesco Bank for example, all the sterling part will be a UK bank, and the Scottish pound part would be a Scottish bank. So if you keep your sterling account, it will actually be in England, uh, not in Scotland. So you can, you know, there's nothing to stop people having a euro account or a dollar account or uh, any other account. So you can keep your savings in sterling if that's what you want to do. But uh, when you spend something in some money in Scotland, it will be in Scottish pounds. So what's going to happen is if you're using what what is now a foreign debit card, then you'll get a, you know, same as if you're in Spain, uh, you'll get, you know, you, it converts to you'll get 2.5% added on for currency conversion. George, do you want to come in on this? Yeah, I mean, the, the simple thing is, um, Ruth, that you, the Scottish government will mandate you and companies, uh, you as individual companies as companies, to pay their taxes in the Scottish pound. Uh, so you'll need Scottish pounds. That's, that, that's the simple way you nudge people along uh, to using a domestic currency. Well, the other question, of course, um, um, for people in, in my demographic um i.e. the chronologically gifted. Um, the other question they have, of course, is what's going to happen to my pension? Will I be financially as secure as before? Because that really does matter to people. I mean, to use that old Wilsonian phrase, the pound in their pocket really has a lot of, um, if I can use a terrible pun, a lot of currency with people in that age group. How do, how do we reassure them, Tim first and then George? Well, I mean, the, there's two elements to pensions. So there's the state pension and then there's private pensions. And uh, so far as the state pension is concerned, it's an unfunded scheme. So, it, you know, the money for it comes from the national insurance contributions that uh, we pay uh, in. Now, legally speaking, you know, the UK has accepted the national insurance and it's always been fairly clear uh, to people that, you know, if you've paid enough you know, 35 years worth of contributions, then you will get your pension, whether you live in the UK or Poland or Spain or you know, South Africa or anywhere else. In principle, the UK would pay the pensions, but I think as part of the negotiations over the divorce, uh, since Scotland will be taking over the tax revenues, uh, there's probably a deal to be done by which Scotland takes over paying the UK state pension and it becomes the basis for the Scottish state pension instead. The SNP has already approved a policy to gradually raise the Scottish state pension to the EU average, which would be about £300 a week uh, instead of the 156 you get for 
the UK state pension. Yes, I, th I think on the more positive side, George, that is something that, that a lot of people understand, that just how how small a pension they get compared with a lot of their, uh, like, European European compatriots with whom we could make a, a reasonable comparison. Indeed, indeed. I mean, the, the, the state pension that you're desperately trying to defend in the UK is a pittance. Um, now, as 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 we've as we said, that the the UK state, uh, even after independent, Scottish independence, has a legal obligation to pay people the the, the pension that they uh, they accrued. Uh, from their taxes over the previous 30, 35 years. So that doesn't change. Uh, and if you've got a, a professional pension, then that doesn't change either. So it's a legal obligation for you to be paid, uh, which leaves the, the independent Scottish government uh, in, in the handsome position that it could actually um, uh, use its resources to increase the state pension uh, to something like a, the European average, uh, which you can actually live on. Uh, so we should turn this argument into something positive rather than to something negative. Okay, well, let's let's just look at as as I'm as I say here as the higher devil's advocate. Let's look at another um, part of the fiscal argument that keeps popping up every time there's any kind of public debate, and that is all the semantics around debt and deficits. Now we know that the Scottish um, government is not allowed to run up a debt, but we also know that in terms of our share of the UK debt and um, post independence, we keep getting told there's going to be a huge black hole, and we're going to start life as an independent nation with this huge deficit. Tim, why is, is this wrong? And if and if it is, why? Well, firstly, suppose that the UK national debt is concerned. Uh, you know, people say we should have to take, you know, 8% of it, 100 billion or something like that. Uh, no, because when the UK breaks up, it's going to follow the Vienna Convention of what's called the continuing state. And the UK has already declared in 2014, you know, unilaterally with no discussion, that they were going to be the continuing state. And the continuing state keeps the assets, like the seat on the UN Security Council, and it takes the liabilities, so the debt. So, you know, you can't take the assets and palm the debt off on somebody else. So, you know, we have no responsibility whatsoever to take any UK national debt or any share of it. And, uh, it, you know, it's not actually really a debt. It's actually the UK national savings. It's your premium your premium bonds or your national insurance certificates and things like yes, that. But, I mean, George, I mean, just to um, move this on a bit, I mean, I would have thought that we had at least a moral responsibility, if not a legal responsibility, to take a share of that debt which was accrued on our behalf. I'm not talking about things that the UK government did that we didn't want. Um, I'm thinking perhaps Trident. Um, but things that they did on our behalf, which from which we did benefit, don't we have a moral responsibility there? Well, let's just be clear, because it confuses people. There's a difference between the accumulated debt, the total debt that we've UK state has run up, and the annual deficit, the annual uh, kind of difference between what you raise in taxes and what, what you spend. So we're talking at the moment about the, the accumulated national debt, right? Um, clearly, some of that debt was used to fund um, investment spending in Scotland, infrastructure, roads, and so on. Okay, so uh, you, you can argue that, the, the, that even though there is a, no legal obligation on a seceding uh, state such as Scotland uh, to pay for, to uh, you know, uh, repay some of the, uh, the debt of, of the successor main state, which would be rest of UK. There's no legal obligation, as Tim said. Um, but as you say, because some of the money was spent in Scotland, I think we might feel there's a, a, a responsible uh, citizens, a, 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 some kind of moral obligation. Also, politics is involved here. Uh, I suspect that if, if a, a new Scottish government um, simply repudiated, repudiated any responsibility for the, for, for the, for the uh, UK national debt, um, then that might make, a, that, that we'd find difficulties uh, in international markets uh, from taking that stand. No, I don't justify that. I'm just saying being pragmatic, that might be. And um, the thing about that, though, Tim, is that um, we learn, if we learn one thing from the Brexit negotiations, is that um, going in with all guns blazing is no way to get uh, a good settlement. So starting off by saying, sorry, we've got no obligation to pay any of that debt and we're not going to, doesn't seem to me perhaps the cuddliest way to begin negotiations. Firstly, if you if you go back over the last 40 years, then Scotland actually paid in of something like 300 billion from oil revenues as a surplus. And you know, so we're saying we should take back 100 billion. Uh, so that leaves 200 billion that you know we, we actually contributed more than 
our share. However, I mean, if we agreed, for example, to take over the state pension and relieve the UK of that responsibility, you could take that as our share of paying uh, towards the UK. So, you know, I'm not saying we're not going to, we're just going to have a shouting match in terms of negotiations, but there are things to negotiate. And, uh, you know, you don't start the negotiation by putting a checkbook on the, on the table. That might be the end result that we agree to pay, pay so, say, a share of the interest cost or something like that. Um, no, you don't but, start it by putting a ski and doing the table either, though, do you? No, but you have to have a starting position. And, uh, you know, I think uh, then you have to see how the negotiations go. And, you know, there's all sorts of things like uh, the UK wishes to retain occupation of Faslane. Um, so, you know, that's something that, uh, you know, they want, which we'd be a bit reluctant to give them. Um, you know, I'm the very state, glad to hear it because state. I live here. People are, have always worried about what happens afterwards in terms. So we have a new currency, we have a we set up our own bank, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what happens if there's a run on the new currency, or what happens if there's just deliberate, um, deliberate attempts to sabotage our arrangements any which way? Yeah. Well, well, well. First of all, it harks back to the previous question. In this divorce, there are assets to be split up, and Scotland will get a very large share of the UK's assets as well as any notional responsibility for debt. And those assets stand behind uh, the currency that, that we create. Um, and when we create currency, if you issue Scottish... What assets? Uh, what, let's spell out what assets you have in mind. Um, land. I mean, uh, the UK state owns huge amounts of land uh, across the islands. Uh, I think the, the MOD owns about 1.5% of Scottish land area. Uh, there's buildings, there's property all around the world, there's the military assets, uh, there's all the money in the Bank of England. I mean, we, we get our share, 8 to 10% of that. So, so that, 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 that stands behind uh, uh, any currency. But very clear point, if you're issuing a new currency, if I sell you, if, I the, if I'm the Scottish Central Bank and I print a Scottish pound and sell it to you, you give me uh, dollars, you give me uh, euros, you give me uh, British pounds. And that immediately goes into uh, our, our currency reserves. So by issuing a currency, you create the reserves that back it. You made that point, actually, um, um, in your in your lecture, Tim. So would you like to elaborate on that? Well, I think, um, you know, the, the Scottish Reserve Bank could end up with quite easily something like sort of 30 or 40 billion of foreign reserves. I'm, I wouldn't actually ask for 8% of the Bank of England's reserves. I'd let them have that because we don't really need it. It would only be $8 billion because they don't actually have very many reserves. But you know, we're not going to have to worry about reserves. And the, the point about uh, the currency markets is that when the currency is created, the only people who have any are people in Scotland who've asked for it. So in terms of the international market and speculators, they don't have any Scottish pounds. So it's, you know, it's quite difficult to play the market with something you haven't got. Would and you peg Would you peg the currency to anything? No. I mean, the, the, the central bank will intervene, as all central banks do, to smooth out fluctuations and ensure, ensure that nothing, you know, you don't suddenly have big drops or rises or anything like that. But uh, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't peg it because, uh, you know, that's, that's a bit, um, it's quite difficult. It opens you then up to attacks if you get the peg at the wrong level as the UK did in 1991. Um, so uh, I think it's much better to let the exchange rate float and that provides a, an insulating defence mechanism for the domestic economy uh, that allows adjustments to take place in the exchange rate. Whereas if you peg, then adjustments would have to take place in terms of things like prices, wages and employment. In other words, George, we've got to avoid a tartan Black Wednesday. Um, yeah, well, that, that, that was, the, for people who don't know, that was, that was when um, the UK government back in the 90s tried to protect the value of the pound against all comers. And of course, yeah, that always fails. So Tim is quite right. I mean, there should be no obligation on the Scottish government to, to fix the price of the Scottish pound or the price of vegetables or anything, you know. Um, uh, that wouldn't stop you, as is the norm, having your central bank guide the value of your currency so it didn't oscillate hugely in the short term. But that, then we're getting a bit, a bit technical. But essentially, Tim's right. 
Um, we'll let the we'll let the pound find his own, the Scottish pound find his own level, and therefore there isn't we can't have a run against. It. But I I want to get into some of the arguments that are deployed constantly um, by the unionists, and these are arguments that they didn't have the last time round. These are new arguments um, because of the contemporary situation, and they say ubiquitously that being in the middle of a, a pandemic is no time to create further uncertainty. How do you, how, Tim, first of all, then, George, how do you feel about that? I don't think it's particularly worse than any other time. Um, uh, by the time we, you know, at the moment, uh, we're talking about having a referendum, some sort of vote on independence. I mean, that's that's not going to be anything less than at least sort of nine months away, probably more likely early next year. Uh, I think we should hopefully have got to the end of the pandemic by then with everyone vaccinated. Um, so no, I don't see that. I don't see the, you know that being a problem. An actual independence would probably be another two years after that. So you're talking about maybe 2024 by that stage. So that you know that's quite a long way in the future. And until you get to Independence Day itself, not a lot's going to change. Well, a very strong new argument for independence is the sheer incompetence of the Tory government in London in handling the pandemic, which has led to over 100,000 poor people dead right that's that's the serious of the issues we're talking about right an independent scotland that used the pound would not have been able to borrow would not be able to fund the lockdown i mean if you're going to be independent then then you have to have your own currency and that counts double in, in a in a pandemic situation where you need the borrowing powers uh, of a domestic currency to be able to deal with the economic consequences. Okay, now um, there's a kind of related question here, which is that post-COVID, everybody's economy is going to be a shambles. I mean, you know, there's no way around that. So how do we avoid a Scottish government, a new Scottish independent government, having to apply its own version of austerity? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a bit controversial here. Uh, sure the, not. The, the norm, the norm uh, in the last 20, 30 years under under this horrible thing called neoliberalism is this that you know the the view is that state should be small taxes should be low government shouldn't borrow actually i mean borrowing is a good thing i mean you borrow to to, to buy your house don't you most people borrow multiples of their income to buy the house we consider that a good thing as an investment in the future it's the same with the government provided you're borrowing for the right thing the issue is not the scale of the borrowing so austerity shouldn't be an issue right the issue is good governments and what the government borrows to spend on. And I think a government, Scottish government, independent government, closer to home would be under a much, would be in a much better position to choose wisely what to spend on and therefore borrowing should not be an issue. Well, if we adopted, say, uh, the Green New Deal that Richard Murphy proposes for Scotland, so that would be spending maybe 10 billion a year uh, on um, insulating every house and business premise in Scotland, for example, electrifying all the remaining railways, uh, district heating schemes, uh, and so forth. If the return on that investment was, say, 5% per annum, and the borrowing cost is 0.5 or 1% per annum, so effectively you're getting a 4% return on your investment, well, if it was a business looking at it, they'd do it. So why why shouldn't the state do it? You know, you're creating a return for the um, future generations. So uh, you should be borrowing even more when it's uh, you know that profitable uh, to make the investment. Okay, one final question for both of you. Um, we started off talking about the, the, the Scottish Growth Commission and, and your reservations about it. I want you to draw me a picture of what the new Scotland would look like if we adopted the Growth Commission's proposals and what it would look like if we ditched them. So, Well, I've characterised the Growth Commission as being technocratic managerialism. So it has no vision for Scotland at all. It's it's a we're going to have a little bit more immigration, a little bit of a tweak to productivity, a little bit more investment, and at the end of thirty years, we'll all be a little bit better off. And I'm afraid that's not a vision uh, for selling independence. What we could do is you know go down the Green New Deal route, decarbonise the economy. We can become the renewable energy centre of Europe. I think Scotland has something like fifty percent of the total energy resources available from wind and tidal power so we could be you know that could be the new oil of exporting energy you know throughout uh, uh, Europe uh, and you know developing our industries our agriculture sorting out the land question uh, all of those sort of things getting rid of all the poverty and uh, you know children growing up in deprived situations and things like that that's what people want independence for is to change we don't want just slightly more of the same of but slightly better George the top priority of the Growth Commission is to curb public spending. Now, that's a nonsense. 
It's nonsense when it was written. It's a nonsense now, especially with the pandemic and the economic consequences of the pandemic. So the Growth Commission report is history. What we need is investment. As one, one good thing the Growth Commission report points out is that Scotland is, is unique amongst the small economy, industrial economies in Western Europe. It has such a low level of investment annually. So we need investment. That can only come really through the state and a state investment bank. Actually, I said that was the last question. I've, I've got one more probably. Um, do you, either of you think there is enough work being done at the moment to bolster this alternative vision that you've both shared with us? Well, beyond what we're trying to do in the Scottish Currency Group of getting the central bank off the ground, then, you know, so as far as the rest of the SNP or the Scottish government's concerned, I don't think there's any work going on on, um, uh, you know, pl detailed plans for independence. You know, certainly the Scottish government very briefly had seven people looking at it for about six months in 2019, and that was disbanded as soon as the pandemic broke out. Nothing's happened since. I mean, all, as Tim says, all, all of the research work is being done first of the SNP and first of the Scottish government. For instance, Commonweal, Commonweal Think Tank, has done a lot of research into uh, uh, the Green New Deal. Um, sadly, um, we keep being told that there's going to be a referendum each and every year, um, but you can't have a referendum really and win it unless you have a detailed economic plan. And that's desperately, desperately what we need. OK, well, listen, thanks both to Tim Raidow and George Kerivan, because from my point of view as the non-economist in this discussion, I'm comforted that there are guys like that who are watching your backs. Thank you both very much. And then life got on radio.